I had intended to introduce this sermon by talking about the authority of the Word of God. And I'll just reference that. I'm going to do a little bit of a pivot. When we study the Scripture, as many times we may realize there's different applications for each of us, one of our core convictions is that we don't believe the Bible has multiple meanings. We believe God gave us His Word with His Spirit's intent, and with His Spirit inside of our hearts, we understand what the Word of God is about. In a text like what we're going to look at this morning, I think it's abundantly clear. There's two different scenes. One is with children. One's with a young man who's got lots of riches. And I would just say to you that the abundantly clear single meaning of the Word of God this morning is who gets the kingdom. Not everyone. Who gets to be a part of the kingdom of Jesus? So I was going to do a longer little spiel about interpreting the Word of God. I'm preparing for another preaching workshop that I'll be instructing at in a few weeks. And it always just brings to the surface, do we even know... Know what God says about the authority of God's own word and do we trust it? But what I'd rather do to get us into this is I want you to think with me about the different places that just us in this room are coming from as we walk into this place. I want you to think with me about anytime you're a part of a community, it's very rare that everyone is feeling the same thing when they walk in. Let me use a case in point from our home yesterday. We had our, one of our college daughters coming home. We were all excited when they get here. She comes bounding in, hugs and hellos, but her mother was gone, and that means I had to clean the house by myself with the other kids, so other children at that time were not excited. They were in trouble for not working very hard to help Daddy clean the house. I was excited to see her, but I was also somewhat grumpy about how long the process had taken. Maybe also grumpy about other projects I didn't get done because they were too hard for me. But then this is very sober. One of our children was very upset because she found out yesterday unexpectedly a classmate died. An eighth grader in Johnson City. Sudden sickness unto death. So we have a 13-year-old weeping over life and death. And all of us are in this community moment together and it just didn't quite feel the same for each of us. People had different thoughts going on, different needs, different connect points. Let's take that as we read this text. I want you to picture with me parents bringing their children to Jesus. Some of the children, I imagine, are running laps around him. And then picture with me a young man who is pretty proud of himself, has a very good dossier of his performance so far in his life, and he's got some questions to Jesus about what is needed to make sure that he's saved. When people come to Jesus, we come from different places, and the gospel is glorious when we see that Jesus intersects us right where we are as we need to be instructed, confronted, comforted, whatever it may be. It's a missions Sunday during this missions month, but just, we won't spend a lot of time, but think about the model of missionary Jesus is here. The way he is with children, on the streets where he walks, and the kinds of questions he asked to a very self-righteous man, both of which need Jesus. So let's stand together, and I'll read to you from Matthew 19. We begin in verse 13. We'll read through verse 22. Well, through verse 23, excuse me. And then next week, we're going to kind of do part two of the story of the rich young man. Then children were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them, And pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. 
And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God. Father, we ask that you would show us what's in this for each of us, child and adult alike. Those with excess discretionary income and means and those who would say, I have lack. And help us to have sensitivity and readiness for your Holy Spirit to apply this to our lives as we seek to walk in obedience. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So in this passage, um, I'll just go ahead and point out quickly, I think that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is kind of broadly presented. So let me show you three ways in which I think the kingdom is presented. If you look in verse 13, also again in verse 15, notice that the kingdom has something to do with being touched by Jesus. Right? They, they ask Jesus to, to touch their children and then he lays his hands on them. So there's something present about the kingdom of heaven that's come to earth in Jesus. That's one thing I want you to notice. But it's not just a present reality. If we look at this young man who comes to Jesus, he says, Jesus, teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? So this young man, he brings up eternity. He brings up life eternal. And if we see the commentary that Jesus gives in verse 23, which kind of will be talked more about next week, Jesus himself is the one that says, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. But that rich person asked a question about eternal life. So the kingdom is not just present experience and touch by Jesus. It's also some form of understanding of eternal blessing in Jesus' kingdom. And then a third little thing I point to here is this man asks, what must he do to make sure that he has life? Well, how do you describe that life? Well, again, as we'll see next week, the disciples interpret it. And in verse 25, they ask Jesus a question. They say, well, who then can be saved? So we're also talking about salvation. The kingdom means being saved of our sin and being in the presence of a righteous God that we must be saved in order to actually be in his presence. So it's present, it's eternal, it's about salvation. At our church, at Christ Community, um, if you're... First time visitor, we're thankful you're here. If you've been with us a while, certainly if you've been with us for the last eight years, I think we talk a lot about kingdom. That's a semantic that we're familiar with. It's in the scriptures. We long for Jesus' kingdom to come in our life, in our homes. We long for it in our hearts where God would do that inverting reality where he would replace what is unrighteous with what is righteous. He would replace injustice with what is just. And we talk, I think, much about the fact that we are sojourners and exiles. We live in the kingdoms of this world, but we are citizens in the kingdom of heaven. I think that's a way that I, I hope you sense that we speak. We anticipate a day when the new heaven and new earth will come down in this very place and the king will be with his people and all will be made right. There will be no more tears or weeping, no more death, no more sin. 
We talk about kingdom a lot, so there's no discomfort here as we think about this theme. But I've been thinking as I study this, there's also ways I don't talk. I don't talk. Maybe you do. But if you do talk this way, you make me feel a little awkward. I don't usually talk about being touched by God, for example. Something tangible about that. It's kind of often misinterpreted, perhaps. What does it mean by being touched by God? I don't usually use that semantic or language. I don't even often talk about getting saved. And even the way I said that probably reveals that I'm an arrogant non-local. You know, there's a lot of churches who talk about getting saved. Everything's about the altar call. And I don't talk that way because I don't necessarily want the misinterpretation that can come with that. But as I study a text like this, I think those are words in the scriptures that we must use and they have meaning. The kingdom of heaven is about being touched by God right now because he came to earth in Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is about getting saved from our sin and being saved unto eternity without guilt or shame. So I appeal to you that as we look at this passage, the whole description of the kingdom, whether it's language of being touched, language of being saved, language of inheritance, which is where it goes, we need to understand it's one thing that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about his kingdom that he brought down to earth. And the first conversation about it here in this text is with parents about their children or with his disciples about parents who bring their children. So we see people in the crowd bring their children to Jesus. In Matthew and Mark's gospel, the word for children is just the regular Greek word for a child. Okay, So picture maybe the children that just walked up this morning or our children all over the church that maybe in elementary age, maybe up into young adulthood. That's just the Greek word for child. But in Luke's account of this story, it's interesting, it's the Greek word brephe, which is the word for infant. I got to be with an infant this week as I saw little Oliver, grandson of Rod and Roseanne, Curtis and Abby's little child. He's a little dude. Long legs, skinny legs, but just a tiny infant. I want you to picture with me, that's the scene before us. Some of the children surely did come skipping to Jesus. Their parents brought them, and they ran, and they did all the things that children do, and others were so tiny... They had to be carried. I think that's incredibly important. Picture with me the insanity of the scene. We, we, we know how children can be, and so do the disciples. And so the disciples, they think it's cute and all, but they know Jesus has an agenda. They know he has things that people need to hear. And so they push the children back. They rebuke the parents and say, okay, that's enough. Time, time to go. And Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to say it. It's in the text. I think you know it. Jesus loves your children. He loves our children. Jesus loves the little children. And he says, don't let any hindrance get in the way of you bringing children to where they will learn about my kingdom, to where they will experience what I came to bring. Don't let their exhaustion of you. Some of you know that. Don't let the distraction of them. Some of you struggle with that. Don't let the fact that they are too immature to understand all the things Jesus is teaching, don't let any of that hinder them. Bring them. And so I want to take a pause briefly and talk about children here. As people visit our congregation, you know, two services, lots of little children, if you see them all in one pile, it's, going to be, it's a lot. For our critical mass of church size, it's glorious. And I'm often told by visitors, I've never seen so many little children. And it does my heart good. We are a church that prioritizes intergenerational worship, and we will not apologize for that. 
We have TVs out front, and you've heard me ask, especially on certain sensitive weeks, or if you have a child that's just really loud, we say, hey, go out there and keep training them for worship. You can listen out there. We do want people to hear all the things that are being taught, because I think we, words matter. But we don't, I don't want you ever to think that we are a place where we believe that your children coming with you are a distraction to God's people doing God's work. That is not the way the Bible presents it, ever. In fact, the other thing is, we're, we're seeing, I think, across our culture, the church, and I mean broad church, that has removed children from corporate gatherings intergenerationally and put them in places where they could be only with their peers, there has been disastrous consequence in the hearts of covenant children as a result of that. We must see that when God gathers people, Jesus says, bring them all. In fact, I was reading this week from Second Chronicles chapter 20. It's a scene where Jehoshaphat, he was a righteous king. The, the people are going to go out to a battle and he prays with God's people before going out to a battle. It's a victorious battle. But in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 13, listen to what I read this week on, while I was preaching this text. Verse 13, all Judah stood before the Lord with all their little ones and their wives and their children. Can you imagine a scene before a battle where a king who's the anointed one of God is reminding God's people who God is. They're worshiping God before they go out to battle. And all the little ones are there. And the wives and the children so this is through and through. I was listening to a podcast this week that just said, hey, in most cultures across our world, across most of history, church happened in one room without audio amplification. People of God, we love children being in this place. One thing that's not in the Gospel of Matthew that's in Luke's Gospel is after Jesus said this about the children, he said, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And it's interesting when he says that, because now we know that in that particular scene, he's not just talking about the children that are there running around him. He's not just talking about our children who are spilling our coffee on a Sundays. He's talking about you and me. He's talking about adults who are not in his kingdom if we don't understand what it means to have the faith of a child. Well, what in the world does that mean? I don't want to overcomplicate it. I don't think we should. It's very simple. It means not that we would be innocent like a child, for we all know children are not innocent. <laughs> Even your grandbaby. Oh, sorry to do this. And, uh, <laughs> he cried one of the, for the moments I was there, and he stood fully erect with his feet up against your son's body. He was telling. Oh, and your grandson as well. I'm sorry. Second service. We have two grandparents in here. Thank you. Uh, that's embarrassing. Uh, thank you for not. Speak up next time, please. <laughs> He stood so erect and so frustrated with a different position that he was desiring. It was awesome. And so we think about children not being innocent. We think about children saying, this is what I want and what I demand. And I think that's what it means spiritually. It means that children, not, we're not to be innocent. We can't be. We actually need to be the kind of people who receive whatever it is that's given to us for we can't provide for ourselves. That's what it means to be a child. It's incredibly simple. Think of children who receive gifts. Right? I don't mean children that say, gimme, gimme, gimme. That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about a young child who doesn't know how to wake up in the morning and do anything for themselves. Who just receives what's offered. I asked Kurt and Abby, I said, as prepared as you were, is there any surprises you've had in the first four or five days of having a child? And Kurt said very quickly, he's a lot more needy than I thought he would be. Right, because children, they don't know what they need, right? 
And so we have children come into this world helplessly dependent, infants put in their mouth what you give them. They don't know how to go get what they need, but they will put in their mouth what they receive. That's the picture we have here. Jesus saying, if you are to be in my kingdom at all, you need to be like a child and you just receive what's offered. You don't go out and get it because you know better. You receive what it is the Savior gives. I put a quote on the back of your bulletin by a preaching mentor and friend, Philip Riken. He, he writes, there are no adults in the kingdom of God, only children. The Bible never talks about adults of God. Instead, it always calls us the children of God. And that is what we are. If only we come to Jesus in needy dependence to receive what it is he gives. There's no adults of God in the kingdom of God. And Jesus, if we receive him like a child, he, he gives touch. He gives belonging. He, he offers eternal life and all the promises. This morning between the services, we're blessed to have seven more families, covenant and membership with Christ Community Church. They met with our elders. And, and another thing that we, I think, are pretty convicted and strong about is the membership process at Christ Community is not excessively theologically deep in the sense of answers a lot of theologically dense questions to justify that you understand things the way that we think you should. No, the, the way we do membership is, do you have the faith of a child and will you tell us about it? Are you hopelessly dependent on a Savior and that Savior is Jesus and you could not save yourself alternatively? And, and if you belong to the kingdom as a child of God, then so do the rest of us and we're all going to journey toward maturity together. That's a simple beauty of it. So we ask ourselves the question, well, that's harder for some of us than others to act like a child. For some of us, it's not that hard. So the question is, what do we need to do to pull this off? And that's a tricky question because... The truth of the matter is, as soon as we ask that question, what do I need to do to receive the kingdom like a child? The very asking that question is not acting very much like a child, is it? That's a very adultish question. What do I need to do to get something for myself? Children in their youngest of ages are not transactional. You don't hear a child say to their father or mother at a grocery store, Daddy, what must I do to receive your purchasing this candy for me? As children get older, let the bartering begin, but that's kind of the point, isn't it? They're no longer acting like children. They're trying to give up their dependence and live with independence and orchestrate the world according to their own control. That's what it means to be an adult without the best definition. And so this young man walks up to Jesus and he has an adultish question. What must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? He sounds very unlike a child. Notice the way the Bible describes it. We have the word behold. So while it does seem to indicate Jesus walked away from the children. We read that he went away. But the way the, the narrative reads, the man walked right up in sort of the pomp and circumstance of a guy who's pretty proud of what he's accomplished in his young life. I don't know if he interrupted Jesus, but he sure does know how important he is. Luke's gospel calls him a ruler. We don't know what he ruled. It could be in the civil realm, the religious realm, but he ruled something. And in your outline, I would just say we should call him an adult of God. He knows enough to act like an adult of God, but he's not acting very much like a child. In verse 22, Matthew calls him a young man. Again, if you're a young adult in our church, in this intergenerational gathering, I want you to listen. Just look at this guy. I know what it looks like in my own life still, I'm still but also my different teenagers and those in the young adult. Like, What does it look like when a child says, I'm done being a child, I'm going to prove to you I'm grown up? Sometimes it looks so childish and so immature. And I think this is one of those moments. 
Notice he says, good teacher. Most commentators I read, that's probably not a compliment. It might be. You're the good teacher, but it might be some measure of superficiality because he knows how the world works to get what he wants. It's worked for him, we could say. Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one who's good. No one's good except for God. In, in an instant, Jesus is saying, you are correct. I am good. Only God is good. He's saying to this young man, you're, talk, you're talking to God in the flesh. For that is who I am. And just like God in the flesh, Jesus knows what's going on behind the question of the man. He knows what's going on in his heart because only God knows that. So it, he goes straight at it. What must you do to inherit the kingdom? Well, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. This is straight out of Genesis 2. Right, you want to stay in the garden? Don't touch that tree and perfectly keep the law of God. Or think of James chapter 2, verse 10. You want God to receive you, then you must perfectly keep the law. But if you break one part of it, you're guilty of breaking all of it. Perfection's the standard if you want to be in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus says, keep the commandments. That's what you do. And the young man says, which ones? Snarky little guy. And Jesus names five of the last six commandments. It's basically the second table of the law, mostly in order, out of order a bit. He does not mention the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, which I find to be interesting because clearly he's got some connections to that struggle. I'm surprised Jesus doesn't, you know, flip out when the young man says, all these I have kept. What would he, you just lied, dude. That's the ninth commandment. You haven't kept them all. No one is good but God. I think we can know from the text that the young man, his conscience convicted him. He knew he hadn't kept all the commandments. The very coming in the first place, it could be a test of Jesus, but if he's kept all the commandments, he doesn't even have to ask, what else should I do? What do I lack? The standard is keep the law of God and you are able to enter the kingdom of heaven. Reminds me of Romans 2. The law has been written on our hearts. Their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse them. I think he's got conflicted thoughts in his conscience. So he wants to know, okay, I've done those. What extra credit can I do to prove it? And I think it's stunning that Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say, first go listen to my podcast from Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount when I talk about how if you're angry at someone, you basically are guilty of murder. If you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. He doesn't do that. Shockingly, Jesus says, okay, I'll give you something to do. He gives him the extra credit assignment. We want to know why. Well, in Mark's gospel, I think we're told one of the reasons why, and I, I want to draw your attention to it. Mark chapter 10, verse 21, here's how the text goes. Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and then said, go do this extra thing. Jesus is loving this young man by giving him something extra to do. Jesus is not going to give him something to do so that if he does it, he'll be perfect and earn the love of God in the kingdom of heaven. No, that's not the way the kingdom of heaven works. The kingdom of heaven is for those who receive him like a child. You can't earn this. Nothing that we can do, good or bad, can make God love us any more or less than he already perfectly does in Christ if we're one of his children. What's happening is Jesus is using this extra command like a mirror. He's holding up a mirror to this young man and says, I'm going to show you how far you are from perfection. Maybe you're familiar with the three uses of the law. 
sort of an old reformed, mostly reformed, but historical theological grid to talk about the use of the Old Testament. So let me give it to you real quickly. The first use of the law that the reformers pointed to was the law is a mirror. The law, when we read it, 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 it shows us back who God is. It shows us God. It reflects God back to us. But like a mirror, it shows us ourself. And it shows us that we're far from keeping that holy standard. And this is what Paul is writing about in Galatians 3.24 when he talks about the law is a tutor that teaches us about Christ. Because as you see the law, you realize you're nothing as holy as you ought to be. And therefore, you need a solution and a savior. So that's the first use of God's law. Just quickly, the second use is to restrain evil. Right? The law in and of itself can't change a heart to save someone, but it can protect the righteous from a world of injustice. It's the second use of the law. Third use of the law is that once our hearts have been changed and we're sanctified and we want to glorify God, we now know what is pleasing to God and we can seek to live a life before him that honors him. But I think Jesus is using the first use of the law here. He's just holding up this extra credit command as a mirror. If you would be perfect, go sell everything you have and give it all away. Give it to the poor. It's going to be hard. It'll do you good. And by the way, you'll have treasure in the kingdom of heaven then you can come back and follow me. And we read that the young man, he saw himself in that mirror and he walked away sad. He said, there's no way. He walked away from the touch of Jesus. He walked away from the kingdom of Jesus. He walked away from an eternal, eternal inheritance. We're told in verse 22 that the young man went away sorrowful. In the email I sent you this week, I shared a quote from R.C. Sproul that this is one of the most sorrowful commentaries of any individual in all the scriptures. He just walked away. Now, now before we talk about his sadness, we're going to come down, that's how we're going to conclude this morning is to talk about sadness, true sadness apart from Christ. But let's ask the question, is this a universal command? Right, so what should we do in most of us in an upper middle class context? What do we do with this? Well, we need to understand it is not a universal command. It's pretty easy to, to see that. Because if it's a universal command, even Zacchaeus himself failed to meet this standard. We're told in Luke 19 that after Zacchaeus was converted, he only gave back half, and gave half of his goods away, his possessions away, and he paid back four times what he had defrauded others. And Jesus said, today salvation is coming to your house. So it can't be all or nothing, or even Zacchaeus didn't do enough. But we can't quickly set it aside and say, well, then there's no application. I think you and I both know that this touches on something that's very hard for all of us. It touches on money and stuff. And as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, we cannot serve God and money. It's one or the other. Money makes a great servant in the kingdom of God, but it is a master that will have to be alternative to God. And those who have money as their master are not in the kingdom of God, says Jesus. So let me just ask you to think about this. Would you give, if you, if you were the one told this, would you say, I'll do it. I will give away all that I have, every last bit of it. I'll live off the land. If you say, yeah, I think I would. Let me ask you, do you even do that with part of your possessions now? Has the way you use your resources, A, tithes and offerings, but also has it impacted the way you get to live your life? Because it's not yours. You're thankful to, to have God show you who has need and you, and, and you steward it. If you say, well, I don't quite do that, then the question that we all have to ask is, why not? Like, what's stopping us? So I think we need to wrestle. And one of the things I would say on a Sunday where we're talking about children here is, if you have children in your home, parents, please, 
We should have hard conversations all the time, if you're not, about life and death, about sex and lust, about conflict resolution, about the nature of forgiveness, about how we use our resources and what we do with our money. And I would appeal to God, and I've prayed for this, that families this week, because of this text, will have hard conversations about, what do we do with our money, Mom and Dad? That'd be an awesome intergenerational collision where we wrestle through these things. But we still have to say it's not a universal command. We can't go there. Even if some of us need to actually give back things that we possess with unwise debt, for example, or adjust how much we consume so we can steward our life differently. I think that's all here, but it's not a universal connection, not the giving away of everything. Let me tell you where I think there is a universal connection in this man's sadness. I think that is something we can relate to. I want you to think with me, maybe before you were converted in Christ or even with a temptation you struggle with now, can you relate and can we all universally relate to a world of sadness where people chase things they never catch? Or where people try to possess things that just don't last? Or people run after pleasures that they think will satisfy only to find not only no satisfaction but destruction? And it results in true sadness. I put on the back cover of the bulletin lyrics from a song I enjoy. I really like the Avit Brothers. They wrote a song in 2016 called True Sadness. Let me read to you part of the lyrics. In one of the early verses, here's how they start. When I was a child, I depended on a bottle. Full grown, I've been known to still lean on a bottle. Part of the last verse, listen to this. I cannot go on with this evil inside me. I step out my front door and I feel it surround me. Because I still wake up shaken by dreams and I hate to say it, but the way it seems is that no one is fine. Take the time to peel a few layers and you will find true sadness. True sadness. True. True sadness. I remember living in Pennsylvania, pastoring a church. One of our elders said, you've got to listen to this song. It just screams about our need for the gospel. And I think of this song as I think of this man walking away from Jesus with true sadness. So, so here's what I think is happening. Jesus brought up money for this particular young man because it was the pressure point in his soul. He just takes his finger and puts it right on the pressure point. And I want you to think with me about the contrast with the children. The children come to him and they're bouncing around him with true gladness and he puts his hand on them and blesses him. But this young man who wants to enter the kingdom in his own, he gets the finger of Christ's pressure in the one spot with the one area he won't give up. And so I think it could be anything. Yes, for some of you, it is money and stuff. For some of us, it's other things. Let me just list some things. It could be your body and physical health. It could be sex and lust for pleasure. It could be sleep and comfort and ease. You just don't want to do anything hard today. It could be success and prestige. You can't motivate me by money, but I want to be noticed and I want to be in charge. It's different things for different people. It can be security and self-assurance. It can even be things, I think, 
like fixation on the secular culture and what we should see happen in our government. God can say, I can also turn that upside down and bring judgment and turn up your hope, turn your hopes upside down. But, but many of us, we need the Spirit of God to put his pressure point on the thing that we say, this is what I want. C.S. Lewis in his book, I think it's in Surprised by Joy, he said, you know, there's no region in the, in the innermost depth of a soul which one could surround with barbed wire fence and guard with a no admittance sign. And Lewis says this, he says, but that's what I wanted. Some area, no matter how small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine only. Jesus put his finger right on where that man had no admittance signs on his soul. I think this is what it looks like to be an adult of God in need of repentance for not being children of God. So here's how I want to close up and lead us into confession. What if I appeal to you that sadness is actually the right response? It's just he was sad for the wrong thing. I think sadness is a very appropriate response here. It's just he was sad because he wouldn't give it up. What if the ruler would have been sad because he recognized that somewhere along the way he stopped being a child of God and he started being an adult of God who was pretty proud of his own accomplishments for himself and he was pretty good at keeping the list that he made for himself, mostly connected to the list in God's word. What if when he had this mirror show him his face, he was broken and grieved into repenting? Isn't that what 2 Corinthians 7 says? Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. We don't repent of sin if we don't respond with the grief that we should in light of the Spirit pressing in on it. I think sadness could have been a beautiful response if he would have been sad for the right reason. So, so I want to encourage you, the next time that you find yourself spiritually sad, ask yourself, am I sad because I'm not getting what I want? Or am I sad because I did it again? I'm so foolish, I went right back to something that won't work. I said no to God again, I won't let it go. I don't want you in this place. And I'm sad because I recognize again that I run the risk of not being a child in his kingdom. And I repent. And if repentance then comes from that kind of sadness, the next step on the stop on the train is, what do I do now? It seems impossible to get this to go away. As soon as we recognize it's impossible for it to go away, which is what we'll look at next week, suddenly we're in a position to act like a child, aren't we? What do children do when something's impossible? They go running to the provider who would do for them something they couldn't do for themselves. In this case, Jesus did everything this young man wouldn't do. Did you know that? 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. This is like a commentary from the Bible about this story. Though Jesus was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, can become rich before God. He spent it all and gave it all up to save sinners for whom it would be impossible to remain children of God by our doing the things on our list. 
as you are invited to take the Lord's Supper now, I just want to appeal to you. Come repentantly, ask for God's appropriate grief. If you have been trying to be an adult of God and you know you're tired, but when children understand they've missed the mark, doesn't make them no longer children of the parents God gave to them. Children run to the Father, spiritually speaking, to say, this is impossible for me, but I'll let you receive me again. And would you give whatever it is that you give? And in this case, he gives us the righteousness of Jesus for our rescue. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to receive this like children. Spiritually speaking, make us into a raucous crowd of excited children who are truly glad because we have received good gifts from Jesus. Make it so overwhelming that we can't help but speak about it. We can't help but emote it on our faces. We can't help but say thank you and believe it and enjoy it as your gift of goodness to us. And so we pray that we would feel that today about our forgiveness, about our eternal inheritance. And, and even if we know we have to run back to you right now, repenting of ways we have not honored you and we've tried to perform and be adults of God, we ask that even now we be mindful that you receive us as your children, just like the prodigal son was received by his father. And so as we take the Lord's Supper now, Lord, would you give us beautiful mindfulness of what Jesus has done for us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.